Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Thank you. Please be seated. As it is customary, we take a few moments of silence to reflect on God's word. Well, I'm not the pastor of this church. My name is David Heinrichs, as you know. One of the pastors, Paul Phillips, is the senior pastor. He's on vacation this week. He's visiting his grandson in Rockingham, uh, and that's going to be a great time for him to be able to visit and uh, be away and get some rest. Uh, thank you, Will Reagan, for reading the scripture this morning. Do you remember being that age? You know, full of life, and, and those of you who are younger are like, no, I don't. I'm not there yet. But those of you who are older can, and you look back on your senior year in you know, college right before you get your first job and jump into your career, uh, and it's full of life, full of promise. And I'm very excited to have him read the, the foundational scripture for the resurrection of Christ, the true life in Christ, because, um, because I want us all to take this foundation and go out and live our lives in accordance with the scriptures as preached or read in, in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, this sermon will be the beginning of a four-part series within a series. So we're in the lens of the gospel. As you can see, that's our series in 1 Corinthians. And uh, this is a series within a series on the resurrection focused in on 1 Corinthians 15. So next week and the next few uh, Paul will be continuing the series and looking at the implications of the resurrection. What does the resurrection mean for you? And a lot of these thoughts might be new. Some of them might be good reminders for you. But today we, we focus on the foundation, the, the ground floor. Things that we're looking at today are the, the foundation. Uh, and so I want to show you some interesting things to begin this series, this mini-series, if you will. I got a letter in the mail recently from a lawyer. It looked really official. It was on lawyer letterhead. And it said I had an Uncle Charlie Heinrichs who died in California left me $1.2 million. Mom, Dad, do we have an Uncle Charlie in California? <laughs> no, <laughs> we don't. So I had the letter in my hand, and I literally was walking over to the trash can laughing. And right before I threw it in, what thought occurred to my mind? What if? Like, I know, four phone calls can solve this problem, right? 
And so I went back and I'm looking at it and I looked up the lawyer and I'm kind of making some phone calls. I'm trying to figure out, is there an Uncle Charlie? I don't remember there being an Uncle Charlie. You know, what's... And uh, it turns out it was all a scam trying to get me to pay for genealogy service in my family or something like that. Just in case there might be an Uncle Charlie in California. Um, but what if I found out it were in fact true that my mom and dad hid that from me for all these years? <laughs> be a tragedy. But listen, what if it were true? A, tr- a true, like Charlie was really alive. I would not throw out that letter. In fact, I'd put that letter in a, in a case. You know, I'd be like, okay, I've got to figure this out. Who's the lawyer? What does this letter mean? Where's the will? I've got to figure this out. I've got to pay close attention to what was written about my Uncle Charlie. And then if all of those things were true, notice what I have to do to get an inheritance. I have to stand up in a court of law. I have to stand up and share it with my family and say, this is who I am. This is who Uncle Charlie was. And this will was true. And then I get $1.2 million deposited into my bank account. But if I don't share it, if I just treasure it up in my heart and keep it right here, nothing will happen. And that's the foundation that we're sitting on here in the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Did Jesus really die? Did he really rise from the dead? Is it true? Did he really exist? And if so, then we have to take what was written about Jesus very seriously. We have to take Jesus' own words very seriously. And then if those things are all true, we have to share it. We have to share it. And there is your outline for today. That is, that is what we're going to look at. That's what we find in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. We find all of those things there. Is it true? And, it, and then look at the other writings of Jesus and, and explain uh, the, all of what Jesus taught. And then we need to share it. So let's look at the first thing. Is the resurrection true? Do you believe the resurrection is true? One of my favorite pastors of all time, H.B. Charles, <laughs> he is a great <laughs> preacher. He wakes me up. Uh, if you've never heard H.B. Charles Jr. preach, uh, go Google him and find out. He's, he's really arousing. And he says, the church doesn't create the truth. The truth creates the church. That's true, isn't it? I have a lot of friends. You probably have friends just like this. Some of them are in my neighborhood. In fact, my neighborhood, there's some people who know I work for a church. And one of them said, oh, the holy man's here. <laughs> if they only knew. Uh, <laughs> They can't, they, they, they can't like, behave the same way when I come in you know, to their little gathering. I come into the neighborhood you know, barbecue, and all of a sudden, you know, nobody talks like a sailor anymore. Their language cleans up real nice, and, and they kind of cover up the beer bottle they're holding. You know, they just kind of you know, put a little show on for the holy man who's now come. Uh, and and I've, I've heard a lot of times from them and others, as I'm sure you have, I can't follow Christ because... I'm offended by what the Bible says. The Bible offends me. Gay people are wrong. Good people go to hell. On and on and on and on. I, I, I'm offended by that. And, and I want to say to them, and sometimes if I have courage, I do. I say, hey, um, what about your offense uh, proves that Jesus didn't rise from the dead? And they say, well, I, but, you know, I didn't say that. I, I don't know about that. I'm not sure. I'm not talking about that. And I want to say, but that's all you need to start with. Look, look, 
if Jesus really did rise from the dead, you have to look at him. You can't dismiss him. You have to look at what Jesus said. He's more than a man. He's the God man. If he rose from the dead, he must be special and pay attention to him. But if he didn't rise from the dead, don't worry about it. Like, don't worry about your language. Don't worry about your whatever behavior you want to cover up from the holy man. Don't worry about it. Just like the letter from the lawyer. Toss it out and never think of it another day. It was a scam. It's gone. And Paul says the same thing. If the resurrection isn't true, drink and be merry and just have a party because that's all there is. But we're saying, is it really true? Well, let's start with the resurrection and the veracity or the, the, the truth of it. Why do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? If you ask yourself that question, you might think of a number of proofs that come into your mind. No one was able to find the grave and the changed lives of the disciples. And I mean, lots of things, right, that you might be able to say in proof to give you faith. But I think we can arrive at faith just by reading these first 11 verses. In fact, if you just look at verse 3, it's right there. Verse 3 says, for what I received, I passed on to you. There's your proof. Now, that doesn't sound like proof. Maybe the face value of that verse itself isn't really convincing, but do you see what's going on there? The implications of what's going on in that verse is, in fact, objective truth. Paul the Apostle doesn't just say, I believe that Jesus rose because he lives in me. I have this personal experience with Jesus. In verse 3, he says, what I got from outside of me, I passed on to you. Objective to me, outside of me, is a truth that I verified in real space and time in history. Right? This is objective truth. And Paul writes verses 3 through 6. He didn't make up those verses that Christ died and was buried according to the scriptures. That Christ was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He didn't, he didn't just make it up. Someone else made it up. So who did make up those verses? Well, scholars believe that this is one of the first or if not the first creed of a, of a belief saying of the early Christians, of followers of Jesus. Well, how soon after Jesus died and rose from the dead did they write this creed down to teach their children and teach other people? How soon thereafter? Now, let me just skip to Alexander the Great. And this is where ancient historicity of ancient texts really is difficult to believe. Alexander the Great lived and died, and most people believe that's true. He was a real person. Now, I don't know if there's a, a scholar somewhere that, that, that contests that, but what I've read is most people believe Alexander the Great really did live and die the way that it was written down. But Alexander the Great, the first biography was 400 years later after he died. And, and that's pretty typical. Like there's a long distance between the, the historical event and the, the historical document that refers back to that his, historical event. But how soon was this creed made? That's, that's the question that is, is here before us in this particular passage. Now, critical scholars all the time take the New Testament and, and they rip it up and they tear it up and they throw it out and they say it's a myth. But not all of it. There are certain parts of the New Testament the Jesus Seminar, um, liberal scholars elsewhere look at and say, we believe that these books were actually written historically correctly, and they were written by the people that you Christians all think that. They, you know, there's a few of these things that they'll give us. 
There's a professor named Gary Habermas. He teaches at Liberty, but he graduated from Michigan State University with a Ph.D. in the history of philosophy. He's very helpful here. And he says, look, across the board, there's a bunch of scholars, critical scholars, who will give me some minimal facts. And based on those minimal facts that they're going to say are true, not me, I, I believe a lot more than that, but, but just these minimal facts, I can still have faith. I can still see a reason to have faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And um, Sam's going to put up the slide with the six facts up there. These are the six facts that these scholars will all say is true. Number one, and I'm not saying 100%. There's, you know, there's a couple that don't, but most of them do. Number one, that Jesus actually lived and died by crucifixion. Two, that very soon afterwards, his followers had real experiences that they thought were actual appearances of the risen Jesus. Notice they didn't say that Jesus rose from the dead. But that their followers had real experiences where they were convinced. In other words, they were not lying. They weren't trying to put on a show. Most people believe that. Three, that their lives were transformed as a result, even to the point of being willing to die specifically for their faith. No one dies for a lie. So they, that's why they think it was genuine. Uh, again, these are critical scholars who believe this. Four, that these things were taught very early, soon after the crucifix. Five, that James, this is Jesus' unbelieving brother, he became a Christian due to his own experience that he thought was the resurrected Christ. And then finally, Paul, the Christian persecutor, formerly known as Saul of Tarsus, all also became a believer after a similar experience. So from these six facts, we can see a reason to believe that the resurrection actually happened. Let me, let me show you how that kind of works a little bit. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, he writes 25 years after the death of Jesus. So let's just, let's just kind of play around. I'm moving this stand down here to this piece of tape. This is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Okay, um, Just about two years later, it, it, you know, Paul was converted. On the road to Damascus, this is where he was converted, two years later. So sometime between here and there, the creed was written. Now way over here on this piece of tape, this is 25 feet. I measured it. I'm pretty good with measuring. I measured it. 25 feet over here where this stand is, is 1 Corinthians 15. Most people think it's around there that it was written. So our text is here. Paul's conversion is two years from the death of Jesus Christ. The creed was written within two years. And most scholars, do you, you know the timeline? Within six months of the death of Christ was that creed written. Right? That is amazing that, that, that in an ancient situation, that that's the kind of record we have. Ancient manuscripts of the New Testament, we have over 20,000 of these. I don't remember the number, but it's an astounding number of ancient manuscripts that we're able to piece through the New Testament. This is a very reliable historical situation we've got here. Okay, now, now Alexander the Great, you know, you kind of have to bend the line a little bit, but if you go out to the sign where you drive into the parking lot, the Christ Community brick sign down there, that's halfway to 400 years. So you have to go, you know, to the house across the way down there. That's 400 years. Just look, it's right here, six months. So there's enough reason here in 1 Corinthians 15, there's enough reason here to have faith that the resurrection really did happen. 
That's objective truth. I want to make this point clear. Objective truth coming outside of you into you. Now, there's other ways. I'm not denying the personal experience of the Holy Spirit who is alive, sent by the risen Jesus. I'm not denying any of those things. Those are super important. In fact, if you didn't have that personal experience, verifying what was objectively true would be hard to believe. I would say impossible. But listen, there is objective truth. And it cannot be denied. You have to see it for what it is. Let me give you some quotes from, from a particular uh, critical scholar uh, who teaches over at Carolina. His name is Bart Ehrman. You've, you've probably heard of him. And if you haven't, go, go look him up. Um, but what he does is very interesting with this idea of offense. Let me, let me read this one. First of all, this Pastor Crawford Lord says, Don't lift up your standard to the same level as biblical revelation. So my standard is not the same as the biblical revelation. That is higher than me. So it's outside of me, in other words. Okay, so the quote is this. He says, It is a historical fact that some of Jesus' followers came to believe that he had been raised from the dead soon after his execution. We know some of these believers by name. One of them, the Apostle Paul, claims quite plainly to have seen Jesus alive after his death. Thus, for the historian... Critical or non, Christianity begins after the death of Jesus, not with the resurrection, but with the belief in the resurrection. You see what he did there? Not with the resurrection. I'm not giving you that. But with the belief of the resurrection, I'm giving you that. Okay. But listen as to why. Later he writes, in another document he writes this. Suffering increasingly became a problem for me in my faith. How can one explain all the pain and misery in the world of if God, the creator and redeemer of all, is sovereign over it, exercising his will both on the grand scheme and in the daily workings of our lives? Why, I asked, is there such rampant starvation in the world? Why are there droughts, epidemics, hurricanes, earthquakes? If God answers prayer, why didn't he answer these prayers? So the offense that he has, has affected his interpretation of objective truth. That's what's going on in the hearts and minds of people in our community all the time. Whether it's in your neighborhood, in your schools, wherever you go, in your workplaces, these people have offenses. And, and, and kindly and gently, what we need to do as Christians is just say, hey, okay, is there an objective truth that we can both say yes to? Yes or no? And if not, if it's no, walk away. Throw the lawyer's letter out. It's a scam. But if it is true, slow down. Be careful what you say is true or not. Okay, so th- this is the last quote I'll read from him. Bart Ehrman says, I have such a fantastic life that I feel an overwhelming sense of gratitude for it. But I don't have anyone to express my gratitude to. This is a void deep inside me. A void of wanting someone to thank. And I don't see any plausible way of filling it. Is it true? Or are you just offended well, I'm going to say it's true. I'm looking objectively here. Look, I, I am just as offended as the next person with certain scriptures. I read them and I don't like them. 
I don't want to read them again. I wish they weren't in the Bible. Some passages bother me. Everybody goes through that. But the fact that this is objectively true forces me to, to wrestle with them and not give up. So now let's wrestle with them. The writings of Jesus. And you'll see something glorious here. Look at verse 3. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Here's the question I have for you. Why does he keep saying according to the scriptures? According to the scriptures. This is the Old Testament. And possibly... At this point in time, 25 years later, he may have included the parables and sermons of Jesus, but certainly it was the Old Testament. Is Jesus the topic of the Old Testament? That's a brand new thought to people uh, who haven't really uh, understood the resurrection and the implications of the resurrection. I thought the Old Testament was about Israel and Noah and Moses and King David. Well, it is. But the resurrection of Jesus explains the rest of Scripture. Think about this. You know the, the uh, movie Village, The Village by Shilaman Knight. You've also heard of Signs or Sixth Sense, I See Dead People. That, those are all his movies. And in the movies that he creates, all of them, it doesn't matter, pick one. It doesn't matter. He, he has a twist at the end. And so really, you only can watch those movies twice, right, before you're, t- you're tired of them. But the first time you watch the movie, you know, you see the twist at the end, and you're reeling. You're like, wait, what just happened? And you're surprised by it. And you go back, and you say, did, did, what, how did that happen? This happened. And you try to put, like, in rewind all of the events of the movie and try to make sense of them with the twist that you're now seeing at the end. And then you watch the movie a second time, now with the twist fully understood. And the second watching is way better to me. I mean, I love it. I'm like, yeah, I see it there. Do you see? He wasn't really looking at him when he was talking to him. You saw that, right? You know, all these things, you know, that, that just now make perfect sense that you didn't see before explain the twist. The resurrection is just like that with the Bible. Without the resurrection... The cross is defeat. You can put that slide up here. The cross on the left side, without the resurrection, that's defeat. Jesus was being crucified for his own sins. God was punishing him. No Messiah would be punished like that. So the cross is defeat. With it, though, the cross is salvation and an expression of love. Without the resurrection, the Bible is merely a collection of stories of, of a people and nation that fall, failed, fall, fell down, and died. And then they were scattered. With the resurrection, the Bible is a collection of promises of a Messiah who will save all of us. This is exactly what happened on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24 Remember that story? The two disciples are walking down the road, and, and two or three, and then this man appears. We know it's Jesus, but we don't know at the time. No, he's a mysterious guy. Who is this guy walking with us all of a sudden? And the road to Emmaus, he starts you know, saying, hey, what's going on, guys? Oh, yeah, we just had this awful experience where our master died, Jesus. You heard about it, right? The crucifixion. Yeah. Hey, he was the Messiah. The mysterious man started to open up scriptures. Hey, remember that story? That proves he was the Messiah. Remember this passage? That proves he was the Messiah. And they spent the whole time, seven miles, walking, and he was just talking about the Bible. And then they got to Emmaus, 
And the guy disappeared. And they say, oh, that was Jesus. And in that moment, they said, didn't our hearts burn within us as he opened the scriptures to us? Listen, he opened the scriptures to us doesn't mean he opened the book and read from it. He opened the scriptures means I finally see it for what it is. I know the twist at the end of the story, and I'm rereading the whole of Scripture, and I'm seeing, just like the second watching of a Shiloh Night movie, I see all these things happening, and it's glorious. This is my experience, too. My experience was very much like this. When I was 16 years old, I decided in my foolish mind to rebel. And when I decided to rebel with all my buddies, we're all rebelling against the Lord uh, I spent about two years or so, you know, rebelling, and, and I, I threw away the scriptures. I threw away the lawyer letter. I threw away everything. I was, every, I was done. And my parents made me go to church, and so I did, and I, you know, grunted and groaned, but I did. Uh, but the whole time I was, you know, my arms were crossed, and I was like, yeah, prove it to me. But, and I just had this terrible attitude of rebellion. And at the end of that two, two years, honestly, I don't know what happened. Campus Baptist Church, you know... It was, a, it was a nice small church, and Malin Friesen was the pastor, and he was preaching. I don't remember what he said, but boom, the road to Damascus, the end of the road to Emmaus, it happened to me. God opened up my mind, my heart, my eyes, my ears, everything opened up, and I'm like, duh, what have I been doing? Now, for me, an explosion happened. I was a sponge that had gasoline soaked through. And on that day, a match was lit, and it was an explosion. Now, it doesn't happen like that for everybody. Um, you know, I had a friend who was raised in, in a, no church, really, didn't go to church at all, and she, she was saved around the same time I was, and she was like a little flame that started on a, on a twig and, and then moved to a bigger stick, and before you know it, she had a pretty good little fire going, right? Not for me. I was like, Pfft. and it wasn't a function of my personality. I tell the teenagers a lot. I'm the most religious person in the room. Now, I know I'm not the most religious person in this room uh, because some of you have been to church more than me. But in a teenage setting, I'm pretty confident I'm the most religious person in the room. I've counted how many church services I've been to. Have you? Do you know how many church services? I've been to 2,312 today in my life. 2,312. It's impressive, right? I thought about when I wrote the number down, I'm like, gosh, if I could just have a dollar for every time I went to church, just out of the offering, you know, I don't know. But anyways, I wouldn't be rich. That's only $2,000. But still, I mean, that's a lot of church services, guys. That's a lot of church services that I've been to over the years. My, My parents maybe skip church three times a year or four times a year, not very often. And so I was at church all the time. went to Awana. There you go. Boy Scouts? No, we memorize scripture in Awana. Thank you very much. We memorize. You you get a badge if you memorize a verse. So I went to Awana on Wednesdays. Yeah, I was in the youth group. I was there. I was always at church. I was in the choir. And I went to a Christian school before I went to public. Christian school, kindergarten through eighth grade, chapel on every Wednesday, Bible study, Bible class every day. So I knew... I mean, I had memorized whole chapters of the Bible. I'm not telling, I mean, this is a big deal. Thank you to my mom and dad. I was a sponge full of biblical knowledge. And when I discovered the resurrection was true, Jesus bombs everywhere. I would be sitting in a Bible study just casually. And all of a sudden, Galatians 3 is, is right. And I'm like, that's Jesus. Oh my gosh. I've never, I remember learning that when I was, you know, just Jesus bomb. 
And people would like think I was annoying. You know, I don't, I know. It's a little weird to think I was annoying some people, but, but I was. And I said, David, just let other people speak. And the, the girl that was like saved around the same time was just like, dude, shut up. Let, let the rest of us say something. But it was Jesus bomb after Jesus bomb after Jesus bomb. Okay, Paul the Apostle had an, a similar experience, did he not? Think about Paul the Apostle, a Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin, raised under this great leader, and he has all this biblical knowledge. He actually is more offended than any neighbor I'll ever have, any Carolina professor that ever exists. Paul was more offended. He started killing Christians and persecuting the church. That's how offended he was. And then he saw the, not just the, the Lord, the risen Lord. Do you get it? As soon as he saw the risen Lord, everything in the Bible started popping off in his mind. Read Galatians. Read Romans. You can't get but one chapter before he starts going off in some Old Testament passage. Adam this and Abraham that and what about this and what about... He's going crazy with it. Just think about this for a second. Adam and Eve in the garden, Genesis 3, God says, I will put enmity between the woman and the serpent and his descendant. Who's the descendant? Singular. Jesus. Jesus bomb goes off right there. Abraham in Genesis 12, I'll bless the whole world through your offspring. Abraham's offspring. Jesus bomb. Isaac, Genesis 22, I'm going to kill my one and only beloved son, right? Sacrifice him. That's a Jesus bomb right there. You get it now. You see it for what it is. Joseph, the favored son, thrown in a pit, sold into slavery, falsely accused, risen to the right hand of the king to save his brothers from certain death. You read that the first time, you don't get it. You, do, you, think, you think that's awful. After the resurrection, do you see the Jesus bombs going off all over the place? Psalm 22, they heard him say, my God, why have you forsaken me? Read the rest of Psalm 22. Jesus bombs everywhere, all over that. <laughs> Psalm 16, talking about the resurrected Messiah. Isaiah 7, born of a virgin. Zechariah 9, he would be riding into Jerusalem on a colt. Zechariah 11, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Hosea 11, called out of Egypt. He did go to Egypt. Micah 5, born in Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 52, 53, he would be a suffering servant, not paying for his own sins but for my sins and a thousand other Jesus bombs in the Old Testament. So the resurrection, once you start looking at the Bible, your mind explodes. That's another evidence, isn't it? The way that God works through his word in our hearts and our minds to see clearly the gospel. Finally, this is the last thing I'm going to say. Finally, if all of that is true, and if that is really happening for you, and if you're seeing what I'm seeing, we must share this information in order for the inheritance, inheritance sorry, to be effective. Just like the lawyer's letter, if I did nothing about my Uncle Charlie's fortune... No money would be deposited automatically into my bank account. I have to stand up and say who I am and read the will and share the information with my family in the courts. And then I get the money. Same thing happens with the gospel. Sharing the gospel with others is not just a rule we should follow. See, God designed it. He designed our whole lives to be about this great commission. Look at verse 1. 
Paul says it. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. Verse 3, what I received, I didn't keep. I passed on to you. How did you pass it on as of first importance? Whether then, verse 11, whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. This is the gospel. You ever ask yourself, what is the design of the gospel? You put this silly picture up now. It's a race car. (laughs) I bought a car to save gas. And I didn't like the way that these cars drive, the 120 you know, horsepower cars that get 40 miles to the gallon. And I, just, I couldn't find one I liked. So I got one with a turbo. Turbo. It says turbo on the back. I think there's one in there. I don't know. But it, it drives a little bit better than a normal car. But not, it's not great, but it's a little bit better. And I make a lot of it that I drive a turbo. I'm proud of my turbo. But really, it's not a proper sports car, to be honest, Right? It's a Hyundai. I mean, it's not a proper sports car. Nothing against Hyundai, but I mean, you know, it's not this. This is a proper sports car. This thing is meant to be driven fast. Now, would I ever buy something that looks like that? A 500,000 Lamborghini Ferrari. Would I ever want to own one of those cars? Now, a lot of you think, yeah, it's cool factor, right? Or maybe silly factor, me driving this thing around town. I don't know. But I'd get a lot of attention. But if you take all of the, like, the hype off the table and just look at it for what it is, look at the design of the car, I would be immeasurably frustrated if I drove a race car. Because I've got to drive in school zones. I've got to put my blinker on behind three cars ahead of me, right? I can't drive very fast. In fact, this car is specifically designed, and and this isn't a road car, but there are sports cars that are road cars that are specifically designed to break every single driving law we have in the county. (laughs) Think about that. Why would I put myself through that? I mean, I put myself in a car that's ready to go, and then I just, 35, I'm just, you know, I'm bumping around town, (laughs) 35 miles an hour. Guys, that's what you and I are doing with the gospel when we don't share it. That's the gospel. It's designed to fly. If you don't believe me, read Acts. They get the resurrection. They see the scope and sequence of the biblical record and their Jesus bombs are going off. They cannot contain it. They got to share it, even if it brings persecution or death. You see that in Alpha Ministries in India, don't you? Forty people became Christians with each of our church planners. Forty people. Have I even shared my faith 40 times? Four times? Don't park the race car of the gospel in your garage and leave it there. That's the conviction, isn't it? That's, that's the encouragement. Can God share this information without you? Of course he can, Yes. But he didn't. And he doesn't want to. He insists on using you and me. By this gospel you were saved. For what I received I passed on to you. I worked harder than all of them, Paul says. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach. So I'm leaving you with this question. Who is the long lost heir that God has put in your life? You're a lawyer with a will. With someone's name on it. Go find out who it is. Who is that? That needs to hear. You're chosen. You're loved. And you will be inheriting millions. 
if they only knew. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would identify in each of our lives who we can share this glorious resurrection news. Not just good news, it's great news. We look at the the cross, we look at the killed Messiah, the suffering servant, the shame of it all, the embarrassment. We, We remember how the disciples must have felt locked in that room, fearful for their lives, wondering if they've wasted the three years. They should have just kept fishing, and then the resurrection happened. God, may that truth drive us into your word, through your word and into the community that we live. May this church see 40, 400, 4,000 people who know that you are their long lost father, ready to give them an inheritance. Give us courage, give us grace, give us joy. We pray for that in Christ's name. Amen.